This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. Welcome back to another episode of The Accounting Insider. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Lincoln Pike. Um, Lincoln is a uh, general practitioner from West Wyalong in sort of rural New South Wales in Australia. Uh, We've um, met up with each other recently and today he's come into my office and we've been talking um, about accounting and tax. But I said to Lincoln, you've got such an interesting story that I'd actually like to sit down and interview you. Would you be keen to do that? And you politely said yes. So here we are. Um, Lincoln, let's go back. All the, Sorry, first of all, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to, <laughs> good to be here. <laughs> uh, now let's go back to, because I'm interested in this story because I don't actually know this, but you, prior to being a doctor, were a, what was your occupation before? Um, I was, uh, I went through a bunch of different occupations in Ski resorts. Ski resorts. Yeah. You're a, you're a ski fanatic. I was, yeah. I um, started my university here in, must have been about 83. Wrote poems in my exams in 84 because I didn't really want to be a biochemist. And um, and failed them? Well, actually they published some of the poems. <laughs> and I passed the multiple guest section. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. So sorry, can I? Just, I've got to drill down. I've got to, I've got to drill down on this. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so you're writing poems in your exams. Yes. Um, was that actually part of the exam answer, or you just? It was. I was answering the questions in poetic form. And, and it, what subject were we talking? Well, uh, biochemistry, and um, <laughs> it was a bit silly and probably not very mature, and maybe I was a very young seventeen-year-old at the time. One of the questions was. Um, Discuss bacteria as a potential carcinogen and how it can be detected by the Ames test, which right. is a test for carcinogens in bacteria back then. And I wrote, there was a bacteria called Clyde as a potential carcinogen he tried. He said these Ames tests are a beep, old pest, promptly rolled over and died. And then another question was... This is part of your exam paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you went on to pass that exam? No, just the multiple guest section. Okay. Because that was just ABCs and oh, D's and sure. stuff and... So you wrote the poem in the... In the question answer, the written answer questions. In the short answers? Short answers, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but there was a multiple guess, a set. shouldn't call it multiple guess because I actually had a bit of a crack at some of them. Um, but there was a... I had just broken up with my girlfriend, had a fight with mum and dad, didn't want to finish my degree mm. and um, uh, decided that during that exam that I didn't really want to do that. And it's probably not a good time to... It was reflect bad. on life and work out yeah. what you want to do. Yeah, it was. It was probably not the optimum time to make a life decision. But you you remember that turning point in your life. That yeah, yeah. I remember another another question was um, discussed three mutations. I think they were talking on the DNA genetic level um, and their advantages and disadvantages. And I said um, to have an eye upon my fingertip would be a lot of fun because then I would know for sure if the sun shines from my bum. <laughs> to tie my doodle in a knot would be a useful skill. 
because then I'd never have to cross my legs and my wife could ditch the pill. It's all coming back to me now. Um, oh, what a joy it would be to have two extra legs because then I could run twice as fast and kick three people in the kegs. <laughs> I know. All well, these inspirations come to you in the middle of the exam. Yeah, I don't know why. Just, so this is a science degree that you're doing at Adelaide Uni. It was, yeah, and I just had this epiphany that, that it wasn't working for me. The whole I can see that. And, um, and organic chemistry and, uh, you know, physiology. Bio. So you dropped out? I dropped out. What is this in the first year? Second. In the second, second. year, okay. I actually did quite well in first year. Okay. And they well, credited second. that to me when I later went back. So that was okay. Nice. So it actually yeah. did come in handy. So what did you do? You just up, you decided to walk out and I, I walked finish out the exams? And, and Yeah, finished the exams, walked out, um, passed organic chem, um, didn't pass by chem. And um, then went out and um, applied for some work in uh, Falls Creek and got the work. As a towie? As a lifty. Yes. As a lifty. And it was, I was 17, youngest guy on the crew. It was great. Would have been great times. It was. It was really... But that's... Now, timing-wise, yeah. you would have left university in um, Christmas time, December. Yeah. Well, well, probably November. But then yeah. ski season starts June. Yeah, that's right. So, so what did you do in the six months? I um, was unemployed and uh, joined an acting crew. And we did all the old folks' homes. And, and we did... We did um, the lockup ward at Glenside and just did all these performances and it was a lot of fun. It was really good. And, of course, I did a lot of surfing and, you know. Uh, and I uh, taught aquatics, got into that at that time, uh, which was can you tell us? Can you tell us about the acting? Oh, it was magic. Um, well, um, it, yeah, it was magic. We, um, there was a really talented writer who was um, uh, and his name, believe it or not, was Peter Laurie, um, mm-hmm. and he had written some really funny stuff. Um, can't remember a lot of the content of it, and he did sort of pilfer it. We did a few Monty Python stuff as well, um, and it really entertained the old folks. And um, you had a blast doing this. Oh, I can tell great. by the look on your face. Yeah, yeah, it was great fun. Yeah, and and met some really interesting people who were just in a gap year. A lot of them. Mm. A lot of them have gone on to do other professions and things like that. I don't think anyone's continued with their acting. Did you get paid to act? Not a penny. It was all voluntary. <laughs> all voluntary. Yeah. So what are you doing to pay the bills behind the scenes? Are you on the, I was on uh, you're on the you're yeah, on the back Bob then Hawk I was on the benefit for that period of time. Bob Hawke Scholarship. The Bob Hawk the Bob Hawk surf team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, you know it was a beautiful summer. The surf was good, and I was living at mum and dad's. You know, yeah. and I was only seventeen, eighteen. You know. And and you, so you thought uh, that maybe getting a job on the ski slopes would be a great way to go. Well, Centrelink were oh, it was a Commonwealth Employment Service back then mm-hmm. were intent on me applying for work. So I applied for everything that I might have possibly liked to do. I applied for the regatta secretary of the Royal Queensland Yacht Squadron, and. <laughs> And as a joke, and they offered me an interview, so the Commonwealth Employment Service flew me to Brisbane. For an interview? For an interview, and there were all the other... Did they put you up in accommodation as well? Yeah, they put me up in accommodation, they played for the flights, and um, I walked into there, and I was the only guy without an admiral suit, you know, I didn't have a cap or anything, and all these guys were all strutting around with beer guts and, you know, don't back chat me, I know boats, all this kind of stuff. Because I'd, I'd been racing yachts all my life. I thought, oh, you know, I've 
got to be just like the Somerton Yacht Club, really. Yeah. It was nothing like it the was Somerton next, Yacht next Club. It was next level. It was next level. It was all deep killers and stuff I had no experience with. But I thought, oh, trip to Brizzy, catch up with some friends. <laughs> Go for a swim, have a surf, <laughs> and, um, and get flown home again. Did you take your surfboard? Uh, no, Wasn't no, it? I rented one. <laughs> they would never do that these days, would they? No, no. I can't oh, believe they paid for the airfare. Yeah. Oh, later when I did my knee skiing, mm. they retrained me as a bus driver and paid for the full transition to be a semi-trailer license holder. It was different times. <laughs> so they, pay, you've got a full truck license, semi, <laughs> <laughs> all paid for by the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To retrain me, and so then I was a tour guide. There was another another period of life. Okay, I think we need to go back right at the start. So, yeah. mum and dad. Dad was a headmaster yeah, of the school. Yeah, dad was dad was headmaster at Glenunga. Glenunga High School, international school. Right. He'd had a long history with the Colombo plan, which our era, it's probably um, we're probably a bit young for it. But the Colombo plan was when we sent teachers to um, third world countries. They built schools and taught students and they would send a lot of their students back to Australia or Canada for tertiary education. So we lived in Kota Kinabalu in Borneo. And, um, when? How old were you? Oh, I went to kindy at Lok Yuk Kindy in, um, in Borneo. Did um, you learn how to speak the language? I did, yeah. Um, I, until I, it was a funny story, that one. Um, I would come home every day and mum and dad say, what did you do? And I'd say, I played with my mate, Eddie. And they eventually went to a little parents and friends thing at the, there's a, a lot of, um, uh, it was really well catered for uh, kindergarten. And um, they said, um, you know, we would like to meet Eddie, or his parents at least, yeah. uh, that Lincoln's playing with all the time. And they said, well, we don't actually have an Eddie here. Um, we actually think he might have an imaginary friend. <laughs> But eventually I learned to speak Mandarin Malay and there's all these little tape recordings of singing songs. I can't remember a word of it. But the moment that I was a bit more competent and started making friends with the local kids, then mum and dad reckons that Eddie disappeared. Right. Yeah. So were they, all your friends at school were Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels? No, they were more Mandarin Malay. They were Chinese and Malay okay. in Kota Kinabalu because that's on the – it's a Malaysian state on the west coast of the Borneo island. Okay. You know, with Kalimantan and somewhere, I reckon, Brunei. So you're up, how long were you up there? Mum and dad were there for years. Mum wrote books about it. Um, but when I was born, um, they were in Adelaide and then we went back. To, and I was at kindy age. And Bronnie and Greg were, they went, uh, Bronnie stayed at boarding school at, um, at Emmanuel and she was about 13, 14. Greg went to school there and he was about 12. And, and you Marty remember? and I, Marty was too young for kindy and I went to kindy. And just for a year? Two. Two years? Yep. And then where to from there? There back to Blackwood, okay. which was always home base and then various schools around SA. Um, okay. Two years at Port Pirie, two years back at Blackwood, um, three years at Loxton and then high, the, the rest of high school back to Blackwood. What sort of student were you? Terrible. Average, very average. Oh, easily distracted was written on all my report cards. Yeah, you're a sociable sort of guy. Oh, yeah. I remember sitting in school and watching this mate of mine. 
head down, bum up, writing and writing and writing and thinking, oh, I'm not going to do that. All these kids to play with. And socialised. Socialised. Yeah. Socialized. Always in trouble for talking. Yes. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately. Um, good, good at sport, I'd imagine. Yeah, and it's interesting. I have a bit of a theory about that, that I always played sport and then later when I'd finished writing the poems and and went and then I was writing to my skiing and in my second year became – well, my third year became an instructor. So I was good at anything where you had to look a long distance and I was always up the back of the classroom. Later when I uh, went back to university, I was tested and they said you've got – like a learning disability based on vision and they gave me glasses and I started reading for the first time in my life and read and read and read and loved it. And I think that there was a lot of kids in our age group misdiagnosed with long-sightedness and we, we were put up the back of the classroom because we behaved better and looked at the, and interacted better when we were at the back and we're always into sport and outdoors and distance-related stuff, whereas all the short-sighted kids... They walked later because they were focusing on what was in front of them and they read brilliantly right from the start because their focus was short. So, that's my theory. What, what, Yet um, to be proven. What sports were you into? Aussie rules. Aussie rules footy. I loved it. Yeah. You would have been a rover? Always. Rover. Yeah, five foot six. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, because you're running like a kelpie all day, got into running. Okay. And broke Long records. distance. Yeah. Mid-distance, long distance. Yeah, got a few records in at Blackwood, Blackwood High. Yeah, yeah, probably broken by now. Yeah, but really loved that uh, hitting the wall and breaking through, and your whole body tingles, and then you keep on motoring that that I don't know, switch to keto or whatever it is, and um, yeah, and I used to also love the middle distance where you'd get up on top of your spikes and you'd feel like your legs were longer and you'd really accelerate. It's quite yes exhilarating. Yes. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. So finished Blackwood, then to university for the science. Yes. Then that sort of gap six months. Yes. And then to the ski fields. Yes. Where did you apply? Um, Falls Creek and Hotham. Okay. And where did you yeah. get the job in the end? Falls Creek. Falls Creek. Okay. Yeah. That's the big one, isn't it? Yeah. And it was fun, and it was full of Austrians, so learned a lot of their language, and the cultural thing was exciting, and. I think it's not a lot of money, is it? But bugger, a great lifestyle. Yeah, it was all lifestyle. And did you spend it all on booze, booze and pizza? No, I well a bit, and and of course the lift company owned the frying pan in yes and your accommodation, so they would get it all back, and you'd end up with about thirty bucks. So did you have an account back in those days, or did you pay for it in cash? Oh, everything was cash. Oh yeah, cash. Yeah, you yeah, go to the all. ATM. The yeah. ATMs. Or did uh, they pay you in cash? Started coming in did you get a pay packet with cash yes, in it? Yes, a pay brown paper bag. We would walk across the snow from the frying pan in over to a little hole in the wall at the admin building mm-hmm. and a lady and you'd say your your payroll number and she'd hand you an envelope with your money in it. Those were the days. Oh, that's great. And then you'd put that in your wallet, put in throw your the wallet. brown paper bag away yep. and go straight to the pub. Pretty well. Oh, I bought a pair of skis. I couldn't really ski that well when I first went there. Okay. And I had a pair of 160s, which were probably quite a short pair back in those days. And I told them all I was a great skier. And they sent me straight to the top of the mountain with a shovel in my hand. And I would slide down, wipe out, fill up a hole. <laughs> and did that. And 
as I learned later, which was a great saying about Aussie skiers, George Pimosa, who was the head of the ski school when I first started instructing, said to me, oh, Lincoln, I've been watching you instructors since you were all the, uh, since you were all the lefties. You were all the lefties and I watch you and I have a theory about you and I think you ski very well because you learn to ski in a series of connected recoveries. <laughs> It was gold. He was, and he was one of the. I've got probably about five skiers in my, in my mind's eye that are the best skiers I've ever seen. And George Pimosa was, well over a hundred years old and probably one of the best skiers I've seen. So, can you just expand on that? What's what's the series of, what, what was the term? Reconstructive. Oh, he said, "You Aussies, learn to ski in a series of connected recoveries." Connected recoveries. Because, <clears throat> what does he mean by that? Well, the Aussies would. Uh, being pretty gung-ho, we would go straight to the top of the steepest lift and be pretty well out of control from the moment our bum left the seat. And slowly and surely we'd wipe out less and copy more, never have lessons, and eventually become quite strong skiers because of hanging on and our wipeouts would get further apart and our technique would get better and better. Whereas later when I went to Japan, the Japanese would learn to ski with perfect precision and technique on a beginner slope and then go steeper and steeper and steeper. So we would come to a similar long-term outcome but just through completely different means and probably the Japanese with a lot less bruises. <laughs> um, but Australia seemed to be strong skiers. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, technique may not have been as good as the Japanese skiers because they are very technically correct, but our guys were strong, make good patrollers. You know. So that first year you're on the slopes, you're just um, shoveling snow, yep. fixing up slopes. Yep. They didn't have jumps back in those days. Oh, man, we had jumps. We had massive jumps. Yeah, and that was a series of connected recoveries too. It was like the biggest jump. Landings, you know, maybe one in ten to start with and – we were just made of rubber in our late teens, weren't we? Oh, Remember those had... years? If I did that now, and I don't, I don't do those jumps anymore for that very reason. We're a bit too brittle. Were you partying all night? Uh, in my first season, yeah. And in my second season, I said, guys, I'm right into this skiing. I am only going to party every third night. And they thought I was mad. Mm. And that's what I did. So you actually knuckled down and concentrated on your Focused on ability my skiing. and skiing. Yeah. What did you do between... Ski seasons? I, I taught aquatics and I holidayed, holidayed and went on surfing trips with, and spent what little money I had left over. Where'd you surf? Over Yorks mainly. York Peninsula. Yeah, we'd go over there with a tent and a spear gun and... And just stay at yeah, where? Yeah, I'd camp out. We'd love to well, camp Well, you'd be out. trying to avoid camping fees, wouldn't you? So yes. you'd be camping in national parks. Yeah, camping. Side of the car on the side of the road. A lot, a lot of car camping. And we would, you know those those awesome bushes that are really spongy? Oh, yes. We'd call them bed bushes and you'd chuck a bit of canvas on and then it would just pile on. You'd sleep there the night? Yep. And with a, on the cold nights, we'd have dunas, or not duna, or sleep. Up bed. in the tree? Oh, on top of the bush. Very comfortable. <laughs> Very comfortable. <laughs> was that, that was better than sleeping on the ground? Oh, totally. Yeah, it's insulated too, because it's you're actually way off the ground. They're off, like a uh, they're, uh, yeah, like a, a rosemary almost bush, and there's also an but, aqua-coloured one, which is a 
a really soft one and spongy. Are, are those bushes the ones with all of the um, uh, we called it snotty gobble, but it was possibly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you could jump on them, and they were sort of yeah. um, it was a sort of a matting. Yes, yeah, they're like a couch. texture. They're yeah, right and you drive along past, the SA coast. And yeah, not not every bush has got them, but. When yeah. you see them, there's so much fun to climb on, and they're so robust. Yes. But you'd sleep in them. Yep, and then they would they would spring back like you never were there, but you know in the, the next in day, the, in the hours to follow. And so when when you're over there, you're spearing fish, cooking them up, yeah. living off the land, sort of, and surfing. Yeah, and we'd take veggies and stuff and fruit, and then we'd go into, you know, Stenhouse or go into um, Waruga or one of those places, and then we taught. Um, one of the jobs I had, we taught, I taught canoeing, of all things, in Port Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And, of course, had big holidays. And Actually, that were that lot of wonderful memories from that time. Swimming with the well, dolphins, living off abalone, a lot of abalone, you know, and just eating it raw on the rocks. Just with pumping it off the bottom of the ocean with yeah. a screwdriver. Yep. Or a, a tie lever. A tie lever. Tie levers were good. Yeah. And, and you got to get them quick. Snorkeling. Yeah. Partying, yeah, ice well, coffees, beer, yeah, and, and and sometimes just with a girlfriend, romantic sort of time away together, you know. And so I've got pictures. Of, is she sunbaking on the bonnet of the car while and throwing yeah. the frisbee to the dog while you're out surfing? Yeah, that's right. Or laying on the beach. Or she actually the particular girlfriend Leslie was just lovely. She would surf too. Oh, that would have been amazing. Yeah, she was a bit of a tomboy. Do you, you have a wagon? Um, For- I had a quick as air delivery van. A quick. A quick as air delivery van, white, red, and purple. Um, it was a long wheelbase van. We had enough room to have a bed in the back and put all our surfboards and skis and toys underneath the bed. And it still had six seats. And it was diesel, it would go anywhere. And eventually that blew up. <laughs> was that like, that must have been a huge car. Was it like oh, an old ambulance a, or something? No, it was um, a proper delivery van. That, I think the Ford Econovan are pretty similar. Okay. Yep. I know what they and look they like. And they have two rows of two seats and enough room. And we just put tech screws through the side and put wood there and then put some planks on top of that and that was a bed. Oh, that would have been amazing. That's great. Yeah. And then you'd, you'd resubmit your application <clears throat> next year for Falls Creek? Yeah, and then go back again. So season two when you've gone back and you're actually, I really like this sport. Yeah. And you're concentrating on your technique. You're getting up early and going on runs before you have to work. Is yeah, that the way? That's, yeah, I put my name down for de-icing crew and ski patrol volunteer. And so Ski patrol volunteer. Yeah, so you could get out early and you could also do a sweep at the end of the day with ski patrol. And you could hone your skills towing. Like in second year too, I'd, I'd actually bought a good pair of skis. I had a good pair of – back then everything was long. It was a atomic 203s they were and – they were fast and like I was smaller and lighter, so they would occasionally shoot me like an arrow out of a bow. Um, wonderful skis, and they had proper edges, and they were just they were my first new pair of skis, and they had beautiful bases. And I learned then that high edges were probably holding me back. They grip on the inside of the edge instead of to tilt it properly. So. Anyway, that, that improved a lot when I got the new pair of skis. And um, did the patrolling, did the, the de-icing crew. You know, What's de-icing? You get out early and you chip all the, di- the ice off the towers and right. ski in fog. And so you're skiing by feel, which is kind of good for your technique too. This is bef- uh, before like they open. 
uh, first thing in the morning? First thing after a blizzard. And why do you have to get during the, during a blizzard? Why do you have to get the ice off of the towers? They they clog the wheels. They'll cause a derail. Um, but that's pretty high up. Yeah, so oh, you'd it was have unreal. to climb, you climb the towers in ski boots and chipping with, ice off with an aluminium mallet. And um, um, oh man, that was fun in Australia, but it was really exciting in New Zealand. Um, Do you have any close shaves where you almost fell off? Yes, pilot? yeah. There's a catwalk on the top of the towers T bar, which I've heard recently is now a chair, and I can distinctly remember getting to the top of the ladder, standing on the catwalk. And sliding in my ski boots to the other end of the catwalk before I grabbed the rail. It was oh, so, such a rush. Um, and grabbing hold of the rail, of course, and not going off the other end. Um, oh, you could have been in all sorts oh, of trouble. Oh, would have gone you. right off, hey. It was How many metres up we're talking about? Five, oh, six metres? Oh, no, it was about 30 foot, I reckon, that. that, that That's 10 metres. Yep. It's yep. pretty high up. Yeah, it was high. There's a big uh, duplex um, T-bar. And is this in um, foggy conditions, windy? Really wind, blizzard. Blizzard. Yeah. Yep. You can hardly see and where you're used, going. We used to love it. You know, you'd have your, your hood drawn up right around you and a good pair of gogs and um, you'd feel, you'd be protected and, you know, you have, it, it's like, you know, you'd have all these fantasies about Scott in the Antarctic because you're, you know, late teens and uh, all keen for adventure and everything. So you'd think, yeah, that's, this is what it's like, you know, towing my... Towing my sled across to, oh, across the the uh, ice fields, yeah, you know, but you know you, you know, thirty foot, thirty thirty k's from Mount Beauty. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's interesting, oh, and, so and it was a lot of camaraderie. So you built some friendships with the ski patrol. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of my mates in skis, uh, who were lifties as well. Some of them became patrollers, and some of them are still up there running lodges, and you know we catch up every now and then. So. You, and you stayed there for correct me if I'm wrong for twenty years. I did, yeah, and it, and it evolved. You know, the culture up there evolved, and the lifts all became more modern. And um, I became one of the older um, crew, and so by I actually did fifteen there, and I did two in Japan and two in New Zealand, and then later went back to Perisher after med school. So, is, for has medicine. Has medicine entered into this equation at all yet? Are you, like, yeah. I imagine, are you doing first aid? Oh, yeah. Patrolling really inspired me in medicine. So Working hand in hand with the doctors in New Zealand. And are you, sorry, this is, all these ideas are coming to my mind. So with the ski patrol, are you picking up people who've got broken legs and all of this? Yeah. At, at this point? Yep. Yep. We were in and the did you go from TOWI to ski patrol? I went from TOWI to uh, ski school because I got sacked by oh, the lift company. <laughs> why did you, you I have to ask that was, uh, why did you get sacked oh I think they like to sack people at the end of the season because it's economically better way to do things but also I it was a a, a, a difference of opinion with my um, crew leader superior yeah superior well, it was, what was it over um, a, a, a young lady <laughs> a young lady a very nice young lady yes yes who I uh, became really close friends with and mm. um, had been seeing my supervisor and so forth. And That was awkward. I, I think that was the crux of it. Okay. So you but had to move really on good. from TOWI. It was really good. Um, uh, to I, ski school. Yeah. Uh, I got I got the sack from the lift company. Mm. And the local newspaper, This Week in Falls Creek, came out and uh, a couple of days later and, and I was the staff prize winner. 
for being so good to a family and helping them out. I was a very good lifty. I was very diligent and worked hard. Um, and you just lost your job. And Yeah. And so Ken Bell, who ran This Week in Falls Creek, he was the editor, I said, Ken, I've just been sacked. What are we going to do? He said, oh, well, you still get your voucher for the restaurant. So you can go and have your dinner. That's your prize. And I'll run another ad. So he wrote another ad and it said, oh, um, ladies and gentlemen, this week's staff prize winner has just been sacked <laughs> and is looking for a new job. And the lift company weren't very popular around the mountain mm. with the various businesses. Mm. I got about three offers and I took an offer with the Sundance Inn as their cloakroom attendant and dish pick. And that was a great job. It was, oh, I skied all the time and, and looked after the cloakroom at night and still got to see my new girlfriend. She's all, everything all turned out okay. So, so people are coming into the restaurant all rugged up. Yeah. You would take their coat, put it in the cloakroom, give them a number. Exactly. And that give it back job. to them in the middle of the night. Yeah. As well as doing dishes. And, yeah, I did some dishes as well. And sort Were of you good at dishes? Um. Uh, yeah, but I hated it. Uh, it was. But it teaches you the value of money. Oh, it certainly does because I was earning more money as a dishy than I was as an instructor. In the future, I kept dishying as well to top as up well your income. To top up my income, and I was earning more money then. And it's the dishies and the barman and the anyone who works in the evening who gets the most ski time. So, oh. ski instructing, I quickly learnt, is a bit like. Like training hard to be a concert pianist and then getting a job teaching chopsticks. Mm. <laughs> you know, you mm. snowplowing around the mountain, you go backwards a little bit in your style almost and you don't get as much hard core ski training as you normally do. So mm. wh- wh- where does the migration to the ski patrol happen? Oh, ski patrol was um, during ski instructing and as a part-time, a lot of us were part-time Helping out with the ski patrol. With ski patrol, that's where everyone wants to be. Yeah, they're the cool guys on the mountain. That's right. That's right. They've you got know, the credibility. You, and you you get to you free ski. You when you're skiing, you're skiing. You might be carrying something, but you're still, um, you know, skiing hard and fast. And and wearing those red suits. Oh well, the well there, um, it was it was actually blue back then, a bit red later. And the and the ski instructor outfits, I got. Because I was the most junior ski instructor there when I started, mm-hmm. and five foot six, I got the old uniform from the biggest Austrian guy there, a guy called Konrad, who was a very big man, who actually broke T-bar cables because he was so big and huge and a very powerful, good skier. And I got his uniform, and it was a one piece, so it didn't come across at the crutch; it came across at the knees. So I looked like Fat Cat or Humphrey. I had to wear a belt. <laughs> you know, I looked ridiculous in this red one-piece uniform. It was so embarrassing. But I had to wear what I was told to wear. Was, you still ski in it? Uh, no, difficult. I gave that back as quick as I could. And the next season they had new uniforms. Oh, thank God and, for that. Yeah. And after a season of skiing in Australia, I got my job in Japan. And, and, is, and that was a big jump. That's where you started rescuing people with broken legs and things like that on the mountain. No, no, that was even later. Even later, I was I was doing that occasionally and training, but I did that one season in Japan, and that was when Japan was rich. That was in the eighties. Oh wow! And it was 
at the end of my first season instructing in Australia, I was the most junior. Everyone else went to Austria because that was cool. And I knew that everyone would come back broke from Austria because, you know, you were kind of, it was, it had been happening for a lot of years and you were kind of screwed down. And so I went to the, um, I got, the internet wasn't really invented yet. I, I rang the tourist bureau for Japan and said, can I have the addresses of your ski resorts? I want to apply for some work. And they said, we have 712 resorts in Japan. Yeah, I know. I thought, okay, well, just maybe the the dozen biggest. <laughs> so I wrote a dozen letters and I got two responses because the English wasn't very good. Um, mine wasn't much better. <laughs> but um, I um, wrote these 12 letters and I got two responses. Mm-hmm. One yes and one no. And so obviously took that one job. Where and was where was that? That was in a place called Akakura in Miyokoyama, uh, which is now now the bullet goes to Miyokoyama, and you can actually see the back of Miyokoyama from Hakuba. Hakuba. You can see the back of it. It's like a pair of cats. It's like shaped like a cat's head. Okay. It's beautiful. It's um got the two little ears and rounded head, and um I always thought it was beautiful when I was working there. Um, and I did my after my first season there. And training with the Japanese, my technique was really honed. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was great for me as a skier. And I came back, uh, the the guys who went to Austria had um, not really improved that much and in any way, really. Um, their livers were stronger, <laughs> I suppose. And they were all, you know, happy and they were all my mates still and everything was great. But I had those added benefits of the discipline and the um, – Oh, the, and the cha- money, oh, the, the Japanese uh, discipline. Oh, and and they paid brilliantly. I was earning as much every week there as I earned every season back home. Wow. Yeah, it was. Um, it's a turning point. It was a real turning point. Um, anyway, after that season, I uh, went for my ski patrol exam, mm-hmm. and because of the discipline, I think I came back and duxed it. Uh, I did really well in the exam, and um, uh, in the season after that, um, I did another season of um, – I did that season instructing. Mm. But that following season I was offered a job at Threadbow as on a pro patrol, which is the big jump. That's what wow. Yeah. Um, and – but that job offer came in after I'd got offered a job in New Zealand. So I'd already – I was already in New Zealand. So – and that was – that was pretty exciting. I was 22 by now. And loving life and skiing hard and um, and the added advantage of New Zealand is on Ruapehu, you get to blow things up. Yeah, yeah. The ski patrol get on a, after a blizzard, you'll get a kilo of power gel, well about five kilos in your pack, so you could probably blow yourself and half your crew up. But and with a thousand with, with a hundred second fuse and. Um, you would dangle that over the cornice that was unstable and yell out fire in the hole over your radio and it would just, this big crack would appear in front of you and the whole lot would just disappear. It was spectacular. Loved it. Oh, yeah. been incredible. Good rush for a 22-year-old. Oh. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the, the really, the whole outdoor scene is 
more conden- more concentrated in New Zealand, you know, than it is in Australia. They haven't got the distances. So, whereabouts in New Zealand? Is this down at Queenstown? No, Ruapehu is right in the middle of the North Island. Oh, yeah, it's a an active volcano, bubbling away. Um, it blew up the year after I left. Yeah, it shot rocks everywhere, um, and it blows up. I don't know every decade or decade or two. Um, yeah, very exciting place. A lot higher than Australia. Um, you know, we're, our Kosciuszko's 2226 metres or 2227, depending on the map. And I think it's about 2,400 uh, metres, 2,400 metres, Ruapehu. And, of course, down south in mm. New Zealand, 3,000 metres and stuff. So lots of ice. The ice in Australia will go around a cable maybe 10 centimetres max after a really nasty blizzard. There was cable around the New Zealand, that just in the North Island, after the, after the fronts had come sweeping across the Tasman, picked up moisture, there was ice on the cables you couldn't get your arms around. And it would lay the cables down onto the ground and the counterweights at each end of the lift would be in, like way up in the air. I know, it was shot. Oh, and they didn't have the aluminium mallets over there. They had just pickaxe handles. And the lifties would go out and they became a lot of our patients, actually, especially they, uh, because of the de-icing crew. They would smash the ladder without jump and not jump out the way quick enough and get a, you know, a massive amount of ice would land on them. So we had a few patients like that from the newbies. Um, and... The other one that would happen is that they would de-ice the lower end of the cable first and then the upper end of the cable with sections a couple of metres long of ice would raise up in the air and be free to slide down the cable. And they'd slide down to the next table, okay, they'd slide down the cable to the next tower and just cause a world of pain. Um, smash the tape. You know, they, there were situations where... Oh, this is... Sorry, oh. so this is this is ice on the actual cable that the yeah. T-bar or the chairlift goes along. Yeah. You'd have to de-ice that. That's right. It's not hoarfrost that, that grows up out of the, out of, you know, the moisture in the earth. It's blizzard ice that builds up on the windward side of whatever it's hitting mm. and just gets taller and taller and you get these bizarre shapes on the towers where they're sticking out high, further up high and to a point, you know, and horizontally because that horizontal wind had smashed the ice into it. So um, ice pellets, ice particles, sleet. And it's because it's slightly warmer in New Zealand and Australia, you get more of it here. Are you um, grabbing the skidoo because the, the chairlift yeah. wouldn't be operational because it's all... You'd have yeah. to de-ice it first. So you'd jump on the skidoo? Yep, or, um, or a cat. Snow- snowmobile or, or the cat? Or a cat, and we'd go to the top. The whole group was going to cat, and we'd spread out across the mountain. We'd have our designated valleys to blow, or we'd have, you know, to avalanche control. Or, um, and we, the patrollers in New Zealand didn't do the de-icing. It was the lifties. Right. So, and then you know, we all had radios, and a lot of the lifties had. And then you'd hear on the radio, oh, you know, Joe Blow has uh it's been knocked out by a big piece of ice and uh is can we have a sled to tower eight on mungafero gully or whatever you know and we would we would go down there and 
and pick him up and take him in and doctor would stitch him up. And it was, <laughs> yeah. Stitch him up? Yeah, if there were, if there were cuts and bruises. Or the ice can actually cut. Oh, it, it's, it's like a, a stellate lesion. It's like a, you know, an impact lesion. Like, you know, if you get hit with something blunt, it will split. Yeah, that split lesion. With there's enough Maybe. pressure. Yeah. And, of course, monitor him for his head injury and all that. Um, and Ruapehu, believe it or not, the season I was there anyway, one in three days were closed for blizzards. <gasps> so we did a lot of... You were working your butt off. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, quite often we'd only get back up after the blizzard had finished because, mm. you know, there was no point redoing it. Well, because no one's going to be able to right, ski yeah. that day. And by then it was hard yakka. Um and we'd go up and maintain our gear sometimes during the blizzard, but we'd also have in-service training with the duty doctor. And that's where I became fascinated again with either AMBO work or, um, you know, uh, retrieval medicine. Because we would, you know, send, send people down in choppers and stuff and they would train us in the fascinating parts of your, you know, first aid training and uh, paramedic care. It was great. And that's when I really started getting interested in going back. This is in New Zealand? Yep. And, of course, the next season. What happened to you? Next season, season after. Next season, did my knee. Before, <laughs> At the beginning of the season. Before we get on to that, yeah. when you were actually doing your role as a ski patrol, what's the worst injury you saw? Oh, we're, there were 11 deaths in one blizzard. Did you see any of them? No, I didn't see that one. Um, um, we did have some pretty horrendous stuff there. and uh, some of it was health and safety like the lifties would get caught up in equipment and stuff <gasps> it was quite you know quite uh, and they would lose fingers and arms legs legs <clears throat> yeah one guy lost a couple of limbs um, how did he get caught the in guy, the patroller before me spent a long time in hospital after skiing off a cliff and that's how I actually um, uh, got your position got my position <laughs> He was, a, he was, a, he was, and he became a good mate because the next season I did my knee and he was debilitated as well. So we were just debilitated ski bums. I was skiing on one leg and he was skiing with a pretty gnarly uh, abdominal injury. Um, and still going out and camp, did some a lot of uh, backcountry stuff because it's not as you know you can you can pace yourself a bit easier that way. Mm. Okay. So yeah, the next season I went to work again. Yes. Did my knee. Th- this is is this Threadboat? Uh no, this was um this was uh two rower on Ruapehu again. Oh again, next year. Yes, the next season, the following Okay, season. winter. Yeah, so that was me out. And and can you describe what happened? Oh yeah, I was skiing the bumps and I distinctly remember the feeling of anterior cruciate rupture. Um it feels like you, you really get to feel it when they rupture because they feel like an oki strap but only a couple of inches long and you can feel it stretching to its extent and then bang, it's gone and your leg's all floppy. Um, but mine was hanging on by a few threads and I did a bit of bone and cartilage damage too, so it was quite painful. Um, and just hit a big mogul or did you go off? Um, icy mogul. You know, the An icy mogul. two-hour ice. It was all slush and easy and then hit this big one and I was in. I shot myself into the back seat. You know, you lean back a bit too far. Mm. Pull yourself forward on the muscles of your abs and quads. And so that puts a massive strain on your anterior cruciate. And at the same time, 
my beautiful skis were recalling forward, so they were pulling my lower leg forward. I was pulling back to get myself up, you know, the, the force to straighten myself up, and bang, away it went. And it was after a summer in Australia not skiing, so my quads weren't as strong in that second season. And and that was partly and, to blame. Yeah, I think so. That's my a lot of lot of guys do do a lot of injury first month or first couple of weeks back because they're not strong yeah yeah uh doing um you know uh fit men fit men turns on unfit man skis <laughs> mm. or, or legs on unfit legs fit man because you, you still got your muscle memory you're doing your same turns but your your muscles have atrophied a little bit and that's my theory about why that happened so you've you've actually injured yourself so are you on work cover no it didn't apply to me why? Because I hadn't yet um, re-signed for the season. So I was... It was too early. It was too early. Yeah, I hadn't been called up. So, so I was completely broke and in New Zealand. Um, and so I thought, what am I going to do? Um, I had been up to Auckland, um, stayed at a girlfriend's place up there, and... Um, uh, had arthroscopies and all of that kind of stuff, and they said there's a little bit hanging on. We won't do a recon at this point. You know, you got the, you might be able to hang, you know, save that, and it was going to cost a lot of money anyway. So I had a brace on that leg. I was wondering what I was going to do. I I, I got a job on a bungee operation, which was a rush. Oh, it's a rush doing that. I don't care if there's a rubber band hanging on to your leg or what. It's jumping off a bridge. You're jumping off a bridge in your mind. It's like to get your head around it. It's and I was working on the bottom, so I had to bungee jump to work. I couldn't wear a thing on my legs, so I had to wear it around my waist. And then they, w- I would go down to the bottom and I was dangling over the stream, swinging to get to the edge, so then I'd be on the edge. And my job was to swing them to the edge with a big piece of PVC pipe. I'd reach out over the stream, pull them to the edge, and um, then, you know, give them a bit of counselling because they've been screaming, <laughs> and um, collect their money that had fallen out of their pockets. And um, uh, send them back up the walkway up to the top of the bridge again. And um, how long did you do that for? I did that for the first half of the season, actually. Wow. Yeah, but then I met these guys, who I have a lot of respect and time for. One-legged skiers, disabled guys. Um, there were a couple of blind skiers um, who would ski with a with a um, with a spotter, uh, and they. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've tried to ski with my with a blindfold on as part of instructor training. Can't can't do it. But it's um, really hard. These guys were brilliant. They were skiing good pace with a guy just saying, turn, 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 rock, tree, tower, turn, turn. You know, slow skier in front of you uh, with a spot, and the spot is pretty skillful. But I also met these guys with one leg, and they said, "What are you doing? Go on, let's go." So I put a gum boot on my uh, leg with the brace. Mm-hmm. And um, and went out, and um, my leg was pretty weak. My ski leg was pretty weak, mm. but eventually got stronger and stronger. And did the whole season on one leg. Wow! Yeah, it was a really good experience. I loved it. And um, those guys would come and go from Auckland because they were they had jobs and stuff in Auckland. Um, and I just kept going. We lived. I lived in a. We lived in a squat. Um, in what, the industrial a, estate. What's a squat? Uh, empty house, vacate. It's a rundown house. Like a like a squatter. Like a like a squatter with with 
with four other ski bums. No, and no landlord. No landlord. We just moved into this abandoned house in the. Are you and serious? It was unreal. Did it have running water? Yeah, we turned it back on and fixed up a few holes in the pipes. Did you connect up the yeah, electricity? Yeah, and the power. We switched the power back on too. It was unreal. And we built mezzanines uh, in all the and, – and it was on the walls were – it was from – on the walls were newspapers from 1919 and Hessian and rough cut, rough sawn timbers. And all around were all uh, industrial buildings. Did, did people come and knock on the door and say, get out? No, I was amazed. I was just waiting for the day. But then eventually I hooked up with one of the local girls and we had been looking at this farmhouse that was abandoned <laughs> and she had a daughter and we actually contacted the farmer and said, look, this house, you know, do you want someone to take care of it? We're a single mum and a, 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 a ski instructor with a broken leg. <laughs> can you... can can we look after it? We, we'll you'll mow the lawn. It's it's two foot high, and we'll, you know, um, we're looking after a guy's horse, and he would like to keep the grass down too. And they said, "Yeah, come on in." And so her and I moved out because it was a pretty bit of a party house. The not original, a lot of sleep. Not a lot of sleep. They were play, playing musical night, and she had a daughter, and not we were all ski bums, and we basically just went skied every day, and. Um, that was very interesting. And we, yeah, lived the dream in there. Um, we would go and camp out in abandoned snow caves in the, you know, because people would go up there and make snow caves and then leave them. The scouts made beautiful snow caves. Um, yeah, it was interesting. How did you... I've still got those newspapers. From? 1919. My housemates in the... In the squat, were burning them to start the fire, and I said, "Look, you can't do this." And I rolled them all up and put them in a big PVC pipe, two big PVC pipes, brought them back to Australia. Great idea. Oh man, they they've got ads. In, <clears throat> there's ads in there for well, there, there's all those pictures of war deaths. There's like page upon page of of uh, portraits. Of people who died in the war. Yeah, two-inch portraits, uh, page after page. New Zealand paper, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, and ads for – there was an ad for heroin, our new formula to help your baby sleep. Heroin. Heroin. And to help your man get off his morphine after the war. You know, he's come home, he screams at night, give him this heroin to help him get off. Bayer, I think it was. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Can't believe it. Yeah, I know. It's a fascinating read. should get them out. How did you get from the farmhouse squat to back to university? Right. Um, by then, I was thinking, what am I going to do? Now, what year are we up to by now? We're probably up to – I'd lost my contract in Japan because of the knee. Oh, yeah. I'd come back and I actually got a job teaching water sports down at Port Nolunga to make my weekend, my my two weeks a year with the aquatics program, made it into a full-time job. Okay. Yeah. And I'd actually come back to Australia with my New Zealand girlfriend and her daughter. And we oh, were all lovely. looking after friends of the family's house 
but I really wanted my own place. Mm, mm. So I'd spotted this place that was really rough down at Port Nolunga mm. when I was going between the aquatics and the primary school and it was coming up for auction and it was rough. And I did a bit of research and it had a five-page order with a big stamp on the front saying, unfit for human habitation. I know. I thought, I might be able to afford this. So, because I had a little bit of money squirreled away and I could probably get a loan with a few mates who could help me out um, if the loan was cheap enough and so forth. So, I was I was actually crewing on a, on a deep killer going on race day racing and I, I went off and I said to my girlfriend I said look here's a checkbook I've got I've got four grand in the bank or four and a half or something if it goes for 40 grand buy it she rocks up I, I go back from the end of the end of the day sailing she goes you're a homeowner <laughs> and then the paper came out on the weekend Cheapest house in Adelaide, 1992. 40 grand, West Wylong, and put my all the details. So I bought the cheapest house in Adelaide. And, of course, we moved straight in. The council would come and say, are you living here? And we'd go, nah. He's knocked on the front door. He's knocked on the front door. And we'd say, nah. And then they'd say, but your clothes are on the line. And we'd go, Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to clo- clutter my mum's clothesline. We bring them in and we hang them out. And then they go, oh, and, you know, your car's here overnight. So oh, yeah, what do you mean? It's never here overnight. What time are you getting here in the morning? Oh, we're here at six. Oh, no, we're here at five. <laughs> and it just went on and on and on. And we realised pretty quickly it's actually quite hard to prove that someone's living in a house. They couldn't, they couldn't pin it on you. Yeah, and it was just like our squat. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we had all those squat renovating skills and we just turned it into a lovely comfortable home and um we um uh oh it was classic she used to my my girlfriend used to like sunbaking in the backyard and very scantily clad and make sure she had no tan lines and she was doing that one day and the guy from the council came to the front door with a hanky over his nose and she said oh you know she got dressed, of course, to go to answer the front door, and said, what happened? And he said, I I was looking over the fence. Your fence is too sharp. He cut himself. Cut himself on the nose, underneath his nose. He must have been looking left and right, cut himself under the nose. And she said, you're a peeping Tom. (laughs) You've been looking over our fence. How dare you? I've been sunbaking there. And what did you see? And gave him the full works. And that was it. They left us alone after that. It was fine. Yeah. But, of course, the HIA order still held and we couldn't – you could never – back then you couldn't rent the place for more than 30 bucks a week. So they've gradually increased that over time. Over time. Yeah. So now it's 150 and got some happy tenants in there. So did you have to go back to university to get your grades up so that you could – Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. Um, I realised soon that with my knee I was going to have to have some time out few seasons so your, your days of ski patrolling were were numbered yeah they were yeah so and also i didn't want to instruct anymore i didn't enjoy it you were over teaching the kids yeah yeah um and uh, and babysitting it was it was it was it, it's a fine line between babysitting and actually yes, teaching. Isn't yeah, it was it? a good ticket for travel but it mm. wasn't so 
crash hot to be doing all the time. And, you know, the money wasn't so good. And I realised that I was in a poverty trap. I mean, doing up squats is okay for a while. And that that independence, you know, that you don't have a mortgage, you um, are living hand to mouth and living completely for lifestyle. But after a while, you realise that you are in a poverty trap. You, you do eventually have needs, financial needs, that, that you can't meet. Mm. And that you will always, you know, that that welfare is not a pleasant experience and it's designed that way you know that was your motivator oh yeah my initial motivator was not to be tied to anything and to be off grid but i soon realized that that's not really possible it's not sustainable it's not sustainable you need either a massive nest egg um or um Oh, that's about it. You just need a massive nest egg to set yourself up or you will suffer. Mm. Um, you won't be at the forefront of technology. You won't be able to afford it. You won't be able to have the basic education needs that you want for your children, that kind of stuff. So, and there you will suffer. So I decided then I was going to go back to university, went back to university and did that, finished that science degree that I What age were you? Oh, we're talking the end of the 90s by now. Quite mm. late. Uh, yeah, I was about, I was in 2035, I think. Yes, I was 35. So it was, I was uh, in my early 30s when I went back to university, about 33, about 98, 99. And, and I picked, loved it. You picked up where you left off on the science degree? No, they wouldn't give me second year. They'd, okay. Yeah, the poems were a bit much. So... <laughs> <laughs> So where did you, where, where do you start in this situation like that? I started in second year. You did second year again? Yeah, I went back and started at second year. And they gave me recognition of prior learning for first year because I'd done quite well. Okay, good. Yeah. And, um, and of course, I came back more mature. Mm, mm. You know, I wanted to do it. I wasn't there for the parties. No more I, poems? No more poems. No, I, I could write those in my spare time. <laughs> so you blitzed the science degree? Loved it, yeah. And, and that's what it's all about, focus. Mm. And that's what I came to understand when I went to med school is that well, med hang students on, were... Hang on, sorry. sorry. Oh, yeah. Let's go back. Okay. So you finished the science degree and you must have got high distinctions. I did. Yep. And then from there from you applied... Well, I wanted, I applied for jobs. I, 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 my, my older brother who had done research said, don't do research. And, mm. and he said... You know, if you can do medicine. And I went, oh, I want to do medicine. It sounds pretty onerous. You've just finished three. Why do you want to go back and do another exactly. six? So I tried for a role as a drug rep. Okay. Of course, um, I would sit at the interview and I was the only guy and the only five out of ten. <laughs> they were beautiful women and they were chosen to get their feet in the door. And um, More, What? Beautiful women sell medical supplies? Yeah. Yeah, basically. And, and and when I when I was a GP, they were uh, women who had good really good people skills, mm. really high intelligence, but also at least semi attractive to get the attention of the largely male uh, clientele. That's changing, I must say. Uh, mm. In recent years, with regulations and stuff, okay. the whole drug rep scene has changed. But I couldn't get a job in that area. Um, I thought about research. I thought about going back and doing honours. Um, but basically I just couldn't get a job. Teaching was an option 
and one of my best mates from those years, um, who's still a very good mate, he, um, um, we, he and I both uh, turned around and went and applied for the GAMSAT, the, the, which is mm, the mm. med school exam. And it was amazing. He was a much better student, I thought, than I. And I just got in and he just missed out. Did you do any past exam papers or get any coaching on yeah, what? Yeah, I, I studied um, the, the elements of the GAMSAT directly. And now, uh, since then, you can actually do courses and people take a year off to do the GAMSAT. I imagine the competition is a bit higher. Well, you just took a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, over the, over the months up to it, actually, I, in, in my spare time, I practiced doing time-restricted essays because there was an, a thing about a creative writing essay. In the GAMSAT? In the GAMSAT, okay. which was good because I had some poetry skills <laughs> that yeah. I developed in previous exams. Um, but um, So you passed the GAMSAT? I passed the GAMSAT, yes. And then? And then I opted for the rural stream. Because? Because I had watched in the past the rural GPs having a far broader um, skill set and far – and I liked living in the country. Mm, mm. And the travel Boy, you're living in the country now. Hey? You're living in the country I now. I am now, yeah. 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 But it didn't – it didn't actually turn out to be all I thought it was cracked up to be. And in retrospect, it caused problems later. Doing the rural entry? Doing the rural entry, yeah. In what way? In that later when I did my GP ticket, I had to leave the country and go back to the city in order to do a subspecialty for a year. And the resources for study and training and networking are limited in in the smaller rural communities. For instance, I did my exams, that the exam, written exams, and the multiple choice exams were that was doable. I was with the Akram stream, and they're actually a bit more focused on rural practice. Um, so I did those at the ambulance station with a couple of ambos as adjudicators for my exam, and they were quite strict on that. And I did those in the in about two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. But then I had to do a sub and there were none where I was working. So, but but at the same time, I could keep working because I was always in area of need, which turned around to come and bite me in the end because I had to be fully registered as of about 2016. They said, we're not going to employ you at the hospitals anymore unless you're fully registered or on a training program. So all of a sudden, I'm stuck in a small country town. There are no opportunities for a subspecialty I ended up commuting two hours a day as a single dad and having to pay for nannies and the kids were not coping well with it um, to do anaesthetics oh. in a big community in Wagga. And I also uh, did three months of surgery in Griffith, but that became too onerous. It was even further away and, and just nuts. Um, so it eventually became apparent that um, I had to do a research project and luckily they introduced Aboriginal health as a subspecialty and then I went to a, a nearby Aboriginal health. Uh, it was only a one-hour commute um, and did a huge research project, yada, 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 finished my ticket. 
So it was probably the longest gap between med school and finishing a GP ticket. That when did you finish a GP ticket? Last year. Wow. Yes. Yeah. But I'd done eight seasons at Perisher. I had done, you know, loads of locuming and I had never needed to complete it. You'd actually been a doctor. Oh, practicing doctor that whole on time. The, on the mountain. On the mountain, yeah. With a sub-skill, a sub-skill set in trauma medicine and working in emergency departments all around the country. Did you see much trauma on the mountain? Loads. That's where I, my first hand with a lot of severe trauma was. And I was under a brilliant doctor called Steve Brethow, who had been a doctor at Snowy Mountains for about, I don't know, 28 seasons by the time. And the connection there was that I had been a ski patroller as a volunteer at Threadbow, taking the blood bucket to him and made that connection. And then later when I finished med school... Hang on, what's the blood bucket? Oh, the ski patrol. They call it the blood bucket, the sled with a patient with a broken leg in it. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. I didn't really use that term. There was no blood involved. Um, just injured patients. So he, and he mentored you? Yeah, he mentored me. What was uh, he like as a teacher? He's a character. He's probably well-renowned as one of the, the Alpine characters. A very jovial and, um, I don't know, some people may say occasionally inappropriate bedside manner, but but knows his stuff and can handle some pretty severe trauma. Had a fair bit of theatre experience um, in between, in seasons in between, and um, had run practices and run them well. And we would see with two doctors and, um, and a radiographer and a physiotherapist and two nurses in a relatively small but really functional space, we'd see on a busy day the busiest days, you know, 80 patients. And we'd go out and get a few. They'd need a doctor on the field maybe three times. Um, so it's pretty full-on days. Average wasn't that big, but um, very exciting, very intense oh. you know, medicine. We loved it. Um, For someone who loves skiing, it yeah. would have just been an amazing job. It was, yeah. Mm. I feel like I've done all the talking here. Oh, well, what an interesting career. I mean, you, you say you're a GP, but look at all the stuff that you've done. Look at the life that you've lived. I mean, it's been pretty amazing. I mean, the experience and the travel and the people that you've met, mm. um, the places that you've been, well, the houses that you've lived in, <laughs> you know, it's it's absolutely incredible. So let's fast forward. Yeah, so sure. um, you're now known as the Flying Doctor. <laughs> Only to a few people. Tell us, what, how did you get that name? I was just because I commute to work in the plane or that I do my locum work by flying to a, a location that needs a locum. Um, I got into flying um, while I was locuming in well, a little bit in Mackay and then a little bit in Caboolture, um and learned how to fly. And then in Forbes um, where they have a really active flying club and I learned to fly really uh, in increments along the way. And then bought the flying school plane from Forbes, which was a, oh, you know, bucket. It, mm. Yeah, I, Everyone's I, crashed it. I, yeah, everyone's <laughs> crashed it. And I, and I actually became a very skilled glider pilot in that plane. Did the engine cut out on a couple of occasions? A couple of times, yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what you're trained to handle. Mm. You know, you're always looking for a good place to land. Um, and your procedures sort of kick in and... Um, Landed, landed, just this side of hay and in a um, farmer's paddock. In a farmer's paddock, yeah. Managed to glide closer to the road so I could call the nurse from the hospital and say, "Can you, you know, come out and pick me up?" Um, was that engine failure or the propeller come off? 
that was actually uh, uh, in, that was actually uh, my fault completely because I um, was going from Westmore along to Hay, and I knew that there were plenty of places to land. And I knew that I was going to just make it on the tank of fuel that I had. This is terrible. I should not be saying this on the podcast. But my options were to come all the way into Griffith, call the petrol guy out, fill the tank up and fly onto um, onto hay or crack on. And worst case scenario, glide in. But massive headwinds. It, weather changed. I was not expecting – it wasn't on any of the, any of the charts or anything – Massive headwind, ran out of juice about 5 k short at 8,000 feet and thought, okay, I'll land near the road and I'll call the nurse and she can come out. Bring some avgas out. With a, oh, just a jerry can. My, my plane would run on Mogas as well, so just regular fuel. And so out she came, filled it up, flew off to, hey. Put, took off in the farmer's paddock? Yeah, yeah. Back there, it was drought and, and basically from West Wylong to the Western Australia coast, there's good places to land. So, and and it, it glides in. You can crack the speed back to about 40 knots, about 60 clicks mm. before your wheels really touch the ground. So, and then, so that's nice and slow, mm. and, you know, and uh, whack on the brakes and you can pull up really quick. Actually, the worst place, worst thing then would be running into a dead animal because it was pretty rough uh, oh, on the farmers at that particular time. Did the farmer come out or you were gone oh, in and out and gone before out, he even... In and out and gone, he would never have known. There are big farms. Mm. Yeah, big holdings mm. out. Hey. And was the nurse surprised when she got the phone call? No, but her sons, um, they were on another big property out of there. She was a farmer's wife. Her sons both fly a beautiful, reliable, lovely plane to college in Sydney. And they put together the funniest little kit for me to go flying with forevermore. And... It was, you know, it had, you know, a bit of food, a Swiss Army knife and uh, a, you know, uh, a map and just lots of little funny little trinkets in there for me to survive when I'm out in the bush because I'm always, you know, they joked that I was away. I only did it once, but I'll never do it again. Or I I never do I've never done it since. I've always had enough juice to fly there and back, mm. you know. Mm. It's after that. After that. I was young. I was a young pilot then and mm. a bit gung-ho. Mm. You know, they say there are no old pilots. Sorry, there are old pilots and they are they are bold pilots. <laughs> Not a lot of old, bold pilots. So, <laughs> uh, on that note, Lincoln, I think we wrap this up because uh, this I has have, been a very entertaining conversation. I have, I have really enjoyed reminiscing with you. Um, and I hope I have. No, I hope I don't get a call from Casa. Or <laughs> I'm sure that they don't listen to this podcast. No, I hope not. <laughs> All right, thank you, Lincoln. It's been, it's been an been absolute great pleasure. Fun. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye bye.